Hi, and welcome back to This Week in Voice, episode 15 for October 19th, 2017. My name is Bradley Metrock. I'm CEO of a company called Score Publishing based here in Nashville, Tennessee. Our sponsor for This Week in Voice is Voice XP, blazing the trail in voice technology. Voice XP is taking the lead in developing Alexa skills for some of the best brands in the world. With Voice XP, all you have to do is say it to revolutionize your marketing strategy. As I say every episode, if you have not checked them out, you are doing yourself a disservice. Head on over to www.voicexp.com. Pause the podcast. Go on over there. You'll be glad that you did. Very pleased to have Brett Kinsella as our guest today. Thrilled about this. Brett, say hello. Hello, everybody out there in voice first land. Brett, thank you very much for making the time. Brett is the editor and publisher of voicebot.ai, which is a fantastic news and commentary site for all things voice web. Do I have that right? Yeah, I think that's right. We, we, we say giving voice to a revolution. There you go. Perfect. And give us a little bit of background, Brett, on how you decided to create the site and how you uh, manage the day-to-day curation and creation of the, the articles that are on there. Oh, that's great. Well, probably the best way to think about it is a passion project. Um, about a year and a half ago, I was asked by a client, I have a marketing agency that I've run for a number of years, work with early stage venture back startups. And one of my clients asked me to do some research into the space. And I was frustrated when I started doing the research because I found that the information was very thin. Uh, There was a few things about devices, you know, like the CNETs and gadgets would do. And and their reporting was fine as far as it went, but it really didn't explain the, the industry very much. And... You know, ultimately, I did my research. I found the information I needed. And at the end of that, I said, oh, geez, I've, rec- I've seen this before. Uh, because I was working in the Internet and the rise of the web in the mid-1990s. And I saw so many hallmarks that were complete parallels between what was going on here and what was going on then. I said, well, this is, this is really important. About the same time, I was asked to write an article for Huffington Post and advertising week. And I put it out there. And uh, I really got a tremendous amount of response. People asked me where I got the information and you know, what to do next. And, and so because I'm in marketing, I decided I would just put up a website to share all of the links and sources that I had. And I thought maybe I would blog once or twice a week on it. And um, well, things kind of blew up from there because that was September of last year, September 15th. The first week I put it up, I want to say the Echo Dot was released. Um, Two weeks later, the announcement around Google Home. Um, Maybe the week after, the Viv acquisition by Samsung, which we're going to talk about today. So all those things started happening, and then it turned into something that I thought I would just put a little bit of information up once or twice a week into publishing 60 times a month and all these other things. And so it's it's really been tremendous. I've had a, a great time meeting a lot of entrepreneurs in the industry 
a lot of really, really smart people working in both the voice and AI space. And I, and I do cover both, you know, not just voice. It's, it's got a heavy slant towards voice, but I do a lot of AI as well. But, you know, just meeting so many tremendous people, seeing the excitement and enthusiasm, and that's really fuels it. And it's, it's not just me. So uh, Ava Mutchler and I have worked together for a number of years. Uh, she's associate editor on the site, uh, writes people, a lot of the articles people have written or read have been written by Ava. She's probably done 45, at least 50%, I would say, of the articles on the site. We expanded into a podcast as well because a lot of the people I was talking to, I, I just couldn't do justice to their stories in 1,200 words, right? And uh, I have to say, um, I'm thrilled about what you've been doing because I think This Week in Voice is great. I, I'm an avid listener every week. And uh, I like what you're doing with Voice First FM really is has been a great resource to the industry. So I really like the way this industry is growing up and, you know, really been excited about what's happened. I appreciate that. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that. And uh, I appreciate that. Uh, I, I view voicebot.ai as essential reading. It's so much, so unique that it really doesn't matter if you don't go to the site because you're just going to see people linking to articles from it and you'll find your way right. there anyway. Um, and I think, um, you know, as I was saying before the show, I, it's, it's a, uh, it's a very healthy sign of the ecosystem. Um, that's something like what you're doing exists, but the quality that you are putting into it, um, shows. And so, uh, there's a lot of people who appreciate what you're doing and, from the standpoint of Voice First FM, I think it's two complementary resources. You know, you, you guys are outsourcing so much information and you're presenting um, such quality uh, news and insight and analysis. And Voice First FM, um, you know, we, really is just a mirror held up, you know, to reflect back at the sector. Um, you know, we allow people to tell their stories. So I think it's great. I, I think uh, Voice First FM and VoiceBot.ai um, are very complimentary uh, and, uh, and look forward to, to continuing to work with you, Brett. I, I'm happy with what you're doing and appreciate you setting the time aside today. Uh, agreed. And I'm thrilled to be here. So with that, let's get to the news. So our first story this week, and by the way, as you look at the news stories of the week, six of the seven are voicebot.ai stories. Um, we only thought that would be appropriate uh, for Brett being our guest, which we very much appreciate. And uh, as a side note, we have a voicebot.ai story of the week each week on This Week in Voice that highlights uh, a particular story of interest uh, that Brett and his team have covered. The first story this week is smart speaker sales grow 300% over 2017 to an estimated 24 million globally. And Brett, my question for you is, when you look at the growth of smart speakers, it was just earlier this week or late last week where I saw somebody was presenting, some venture capitalist, my, my, my days have been blurring together lately. I don't remember the person's name, nor do I remember where he was speaking, but uh, a venture capitalist or somebody um, savvy in the field was making the statement that he thought smart speakers were going to grow very rapidly over the next two years and then basically completely die off as they are uh, equally rapidly integrated into existing appliances and other existing contexts. 
as you look at the story of smart speaker sales growing, what um, what is your takeaway? Do you think something like that's going to happen, or do you think we're just going to see more and more growth longer term beyond the next couple of years? Well, the only thing I know about forecasts, first and foremost, is that they're always wrong. <laughs> so sometimes they're low, sometimes they're high, but they're never quite right. And the thing that I've found, or the empirical evidence would suggest, in this space, all forecasts are inadequate in that they underreport what's going to happen. So, and, and I would say this is true in, in this article. I think the strategy analytics guys do a wonderful job. There's several others in the industry who do. And I, I like the methodology that they've done. I, I think they are, they're, they're good on the smart speaker side, but they are light um, in thinking about um, all the other access points because that wasn't the purpose of their study. And so I'm somewhat sympathetic to the, the reference you made around this idea that they're going to trail off and that, and that they're going to be embedded into more other devices. So I think for sure the second part of that statement is correct. We're already seeing it. I mean, you're seeing it in cars, you're, you're seeing it in appliances. Um, but, you know, trail off and dive, I, I, I suspect is not quite right because there's, there's – a long way to run for this. It's not two years. Uh, you know, we're looking at something like probably 15% household penetration in the U.S. over the next year. Um, I think that investor might have only been looking at the U.S., but even there, you've got another 5x growth likely over the next three years beyond um, beyond this year. Um, just to get into households, and that's before you have more. That's before businesses start putting them in every office. So. I think that's not quite right, um, but I do agree with the fact that we're going to find microphones just about everywhere very soon. Um, that's going to take a little longer than a lot of people think, but it's going to be there just because the utility is so high. Now, the question is then, what are the use cases? And if you look at most of the other data, the use cases are today uh, prominently, tr predominantly transactional utilitarian solutions like conversions of uh, metrics, math, weather, those types of things. Uh, access your calendar, maybe. And then uh, uh, music and audio content. And when we, when we get to that, and audio content is by far and away the longest in terms of time spent with the devices. And uh, also usually the highest in frequency or in the top three in frequency of use in any of the studies I've seen. So what does that mean? Uh, are smart speakers going to go away? Are we just going to be listening to the radio through our appliance? Not unless the appliance delivers a better speaker. So, you know, I think there's still a lot of utility for these devices. They're really inexpensive now, as we all know. Uh, we can put them in lots of rooms. So two years, no chance. Uh, I think we're, we'll see. It'll be asymptotic like anything else. As you, as you get saturation in the market, it'll start to, the growth rate will, will decelerate. Uh, but uh, absolutely, we're looking at another five to seven years of really strong growth. No, that's great. Uh, that was like turning on a, the fire hose of information, uh, like I thought it might be. That's uh, that's that's excellent. Uh, let me ask you just as sort of a related side note. So it comes up from time to time uh, on this show and others about the HomePod and Apple just generally. Um, you know, smart speaker sales grow three hundred percent over twenty seventeen. There's that you obviously. Uh, and as your article indicates, uh, the lion's share of that is 
is Amazon, but there's other opportunities um, as sort of the market figures itself out um, and, and the use cases become more and more known. In your opinion, so Apple's got 500,000 HomePods to sell. Um, that was pretty widely reported as well as I think on your site too. Tell me what you think about uh, Apple's ability to compete in the smart speaker space with the HomePod and beyond in the context of the whole ocean is rising. Yeah, the, it, it's a great question. And and I've reported on that 500,000 number and I'll just sort of give your listeners an insight into something, a conversation I had with another analyst in the industry last week. Um, they're, they're expecting it'll be more like a million uh, because they think that some of the supply chain issues have already started to get sorted out um, and that they can push a million. And so what does that mean though for HomePod? So they're going to sell in three countries, US, Canada, and Australia. So that's not a lot of units um, for, for three countries like that, particularly with the U S being 300 million people. And, you know, you think about the you know, number of iPhone users in, in the country. So they're going to have no problem selling 500,000 or a million. I, I just don't see that that's going to be an issue. Um, even at the price point, um, because the number's not a lot now, could they sell 5 million? I, I'd be skeptical, uh, at, at that price point, just because there's so many alternatives, even with high end audio, uh, that uh, are available out there. However, as anybody who owns the Apple products knows, when you have Apple products and you add a new Apple product to that ecosystem, it's, it's a good experience. They, the, the integration, the cross-product integration is just excellent. And you know, I think the thing that gets the most play is AirPods. And I've written extensively about AirPods and I've used them for a while. They're really wonderful. The issue for Apple is not the smart speaker. It's not playing music. The issue for Apple is the very limited uh, capabilities of Siri. And that, that comes from a couple of sources, but you know, Siri, we all know, can do some of the utilitarian transactional things that I talked about earlier. It can tell you the time, it can do conversions, those types of things. Great. Um, it could even get you music if, if you're okay listening to Apple music. The, the thing it can't do is it really doesn't have the broad domain capabilities uh, that we've come to expect now with Alexa and, and, and Google Assistant. Uh, and there's two constraints there. One is there's actually only nine domains um, that Siri allows people to develop against. So there's a lot of things that you might want to do that there's really, there's no way for a, a developer to integrate with through the SDK. Um, the second thing is, in order to develop for that platform today, you actually have to build an iOS app first and then add the voice on top of it. And building an iOS app is more complicated by a significant degree than building a Google Action or Alexa skill. And so that's a significant barrier for a lot of people who've already built, you know, maybe popular, useful types of things in the voice space. Uh, for them to think about porting this to Apple is, is a big lift. And we've already seen the, the friction between the Amazon ecosystem and the Google ecosystem where a lot of people, Google's more complicated. Uh, there's some tools like API.ai that make it, uh, or it's now called Dialogflow, but make that a little bit easier. But still, it's, it's more complex than building Alexa skills. So we've got all these things that are going on with Apple that are really longer term issues for them. In the near term, I don't think it is. People are going to buy it. They're going to listen to music. They're going to have some basic Siri capabilities and they'll be happy. 
Um, and it's not too late, but the limitations of Siri are really a problem. And I don't see Apple addressing them until WWDC in June of next year, uh, which means that they're not really going to be available for, for consumers until about this time next year. Um, so we've got another year to wait. And by that time, I'm guessing, you know, we'll, we'll be looking at 30, 35% of households in the U.S. will have it. They're going to be struggling a little bit and playing catch up in the U.S. If they don't have a low price option, that's going to be a big problem. Um, however, all those things being said, the world is very large. And Apple has presence all around the world with the iPhone and with all of their iProduct suite. And most of the world is going to be very early in the adoption cycle at that point. Uh, if Apple really has an aggressive 12 months between now and next fall, they're going to be a key global player. And, and they could turn out to be one of the top two global players in the end in this space. And they've got a lot of assets, not just the iPhone distribution and the broad product portfolio, but they also have language models. Uh, because Siri recognizes lots of languages. People don't know that. I think it's over 30 now. And at the very least, what they've got is they've got the ASR aspect of it, the automated speech recognition, so they can understand and they can do the, the speech-to-text, or they can do the speech-to-text. What they don't really have is the NLU, and they don't have the NLU necessarily tuned all those localities or those languages. So that would be a place that I would see them investing heavily. That's where Google is sort of in a race to get there, I think, before Apple, because there's a lot of players out there. But we should give a shout out to Adam Marchick at Voice Lab. So I know you've interviewed and has been on sure. the show before, um, because in January, he came out with this estimate of 24 and a half million units to be sold this year. I, I think you, know, you look at something like what Strategy Analytics came out with, it, it nails that number. Of course, they're just smart speakers. He said, Voice for he said voice first interfaces. You know, it's you know we might be cutting hairs here on what people's models were, but the fact is, a lot of people said, "Oh no, that seems kind of crazy." It was widely reported at the time because people liked it; they thought it was a sensational headline. But I think there was a lot of skepticism, and frankly, at the end of the at the end of this year, I think we're going to find that uh, Adam was a little too conservative. Um, but he was the first one out there to said, "Hey, like everybody out here who's thinking that this might only be a ten or." 12 million unit year, you're way off. Hmm. Yeah. And I saw that mentioned in your article. That's uh, that is great to give him a shout out and to be that close in January to what people are projecting in October for the end of the year. Uh, that's uh, uh, you did something right. <laughs> yeah, he did. Um, yeah. Which is, uh, which is great. The second story is Amazon is rolling into Kohl's. So Amazon Echo, the connected home experience, is now available in 10 Kohl's stores. And the voicebot.ai story on this lists the addresses, uh, lists the locations of the stores, which I thought was really interesting and a nice addition. Um, and then it's rolling out to 72 more Kohl's uh, over, apparently, uh, the near future. So, Brett, my wife loves Kohl's. I mean loves Kohl's <laughs> and she also loves Amazon. And it was a couple, uh, at some point on the show, someone made the connection between, um, I think it was Brian Romley who made the connection between, uh, Amazon and Kohl's and how there's a pretty healthy intersection on the Venn diagram of both of their customers. 
Um, so this makes perfect sense. Do you think that this is leading to an inevitable acquisition of Kohl's by Amazon? And what else should we take away from this story? Well, the answer is no. I don't think it's an inevitable acquisition, but I think that's clearly on the table. And I'll say just about the Venn diagram, I'd say that Amazon's user base is so broad now that their they their user base overlaps with every other retailer's user base. True. Good point. So, so I do think it's kind of interesting here. So Amazon's um, apparel business has been growing very fast. I mean, that's what Kohl's primarily is known for is the apparel. And Ava Mutchler, who I work with, has, has written about this a few times in VoiceBot, and she, she used to work in the fashion industry. So she has some particular insight there. But that's not why Amazon is there. So it would make sense at some point that because apparel is such an experience buy that people like to touch it, they like to know the fabrics, they like to try it on, that eventually that Amazon's going to run up against a uh, a wall there in terms of how much they can sell online and, and, and that type of experience. But I think the number one thing here is not that yet. That, that's like the option value down the road. So first of all, I think it's it's a great opportunity for both companies. And I, I pointed that out. A lot of the analysts say, geez, Kohl's, you're crazy. But I don't think so. Um, first of all, Amazon doesn't have a place you can go to visit it today. So now you can go visit Amazon at Kohl's. I, I think that's a tremendous foot traffic opportunity. And I've only been in a Kohl's store a couple of times. And having done a little work myself in retail, I can imagine the promotional displays and discounts are going to be circling the connected home uh, cutout uh, within Kohl's. And this isn't the first time Kohl's has done this, by the way. This is, you know, think about Macy's as a department store. So you've got all these different brands who have like their sections of the store. And uh, I think it was last year Kohl's started with Under Armour. And there's one other brand maybe that they've done this with. And they've had some good success with that. So they, they basically give that brand a part of their store. Uh, and in this case, you know, home electronics buyers wouldn't naturally walk into Kohl's, but we all wear clothes. So we go in and we want to look at the Echo Show because we've never seen it before. And uh, wow, there's, you know, new sweaters that I could buy for Christmas, right? And what I think is brilliant about this, too, is there's two reasons for people to go to these stores now for Amazon. One is... You know, today you you can't really look and feel an echo anywhere in retail if if you want to look at it and test drive it before you buy it. Now there's a place you can go. And and you know, 72 stores is not a lot. That's not a lot of coverage in the US. You know, talk about Walmart with over 4,000 stores. That's that's much different. But you have to keep in mind that Google Home is in all of those Walmarts. Google Home is in all the targets. And so that's an advantage that Amazon's primary current competitor in that space has. And so this at least gives them this opportunity to have some parity in that space. You talk about this whole idea of showrooming, um, that people go to Best Buy and then they buy and Amazon and those types of things. Well, now they can actually go and test drive some of these products that don't exist, uh, you know, in, in many other retail locations. There's a few places you can get it, but it tends to be fairly limited. So I think that's a tremendous opportunity. The second way people are coming is if you buy something and you want to return it, you can just print out the label and go to the post office and send it back to Amazon. Or you can just go to Kohl's, give them your stuff, they'll package it up and return it for you. And while you're there, maybe you buy an Amazon product in that showroom, or maybe you'll look across the aisle and you'll see a new sweater, right, that you want to buy for uh, for the holidays for one of your relatives. So I think this is 
a really tremendous thing. And I'll just close on this one point. Amazon is really big in, in online commerce, but online commerce is about one twelfth of total shopping in the U.S., and so in order for them to continue to grow and to grow at a rate faster than online commerce, which has been decelerating a little bit in terms of its percent of total shopping, they need to find a bigger market. And one of the ways to find a bigger market is all of a sudden they're available in physical retail. And so what they've done with Kohl's is it starts to introduce them to that larger retail mar market, that physical shopping experience, which is 12 times larger than the online shopping experience, uh, market that they operate in today. Yeah, no, that's that's great information. So I owned a retail business from 2008 to 2013 when I sold it. And it's it's fascinating to me to see Amazon. Most people don't realize, um, although I'm sure that you do, that there's it's just a totally different dynamic in a physical store. Um, there's impulse buying, specifically impulse buying is the thing on my mind. There's impulse buying that takes place within the walls of a physical location that you can never replicate, at least with the current online tools like the web, you know, the Amazon shopping experience, as good as it is, um, and, and how it uh, facilitates discoverability and everything. Um, there's some magic that takes place in a physical location, um, and Amazon clearly understands that, and you know, like I said, my wife loves Kohl's. Uh, she talks about Kohl's cash. Right. <laughs> uh, I know what Kohl's <laughs> I would normally never know what Kohl's cash is, but thanks to her, I do. And I mean, she's extremely loyal to that company. Um, and for what reasons, I, I don't fully understand. But, you know, it's, it, it's good pricing. It's, it's the products she's looking for. It's, it's the loyalty programs and all that. So, um, yeah, I'll say, I'll say okay. one other thing, too, that I think Amazon has the potential to tap into. Online shopping is a, a personal and individual experience. Physical retail shopping is often a social experience. Sure. And so, you know, sometimes it's family members, sometimes it's friends, relatives, whatever. But it's people go together to shop very often. And so, you know, that, that in itself expands a whole new world of opportunities for Amazon to introduce people to a new type of shopping experience. I did not have any idea, and maybe you mentioned it in the article and I missed it, uh, that's entirely possible, but the idea that you can take returns to Kohl's and they'll like box them up and handle that, is that, that that's what you said, right? Yeah, that's true. And in fact, most of, the, most of the reporting on this focused on that angle, and I think it's an important angle. I just, the voicebot.ai audience is more interested that you can go buy the devices there. Sure. Um, yeah, I did. I did mention that. And I think that's just one of the key things. There's, there's two reasons to go there to see Amazon now. And that's just a foot traffic magnet potentially for Kohl's. I'm fully expecting Kohl's to have a good Q4 that's in part driven by this. If I could walk into Kohl's and do an Amazon return uh, with somebody facilitating that, um, I may walk into Kohl's. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, so that's, uh, that is a huge aspect of that. I appreciate you mentioning that. So yeah, you know, Amazon, um, they're doing good work and, uh, it's cool that they are identifying partners that, um, for as global and as much as a, of a juggernaut as they are, they, they're finding partners that can add immense value, um, to what they're doing. So that's, uh, that's, that's great. 
Moving on to story number three, Samsung's Bixby claims uh, in an executive's presentation that was made recently that they have over 10 million users worldwide, which is a lot of users. It's not as many as, um, you know, perhaps use Siri or perhaps use Alexa, but it's still quite a bit. And Brett, I want to ask you, so it's sort of a theme of several of these. um, It's been mentioned on, on this show, This Week in Voice a bunch, and it's sort of a thought that's out there that there's still a lot of development. You know, this market is so new, as you mentioned earlier, and it's still immature, and there's a lot of growing to do. And as that happens, the leaders can change in a hurry. So my question for you is, Bixby's got 10 million users today um, worldwide. How do you see Samsung fitting in globally over the short term? Uh, Where do you think their low-hanging fruit is um, in the global marketplace? And and do you see them being able to compete effectively in the United States? I think Samsung and Bixby are an interesting story. It's hard to say right now what their prospects are going to be, but let's break it down a little bit. So first of all, the, the 10 million you said, that's enough of a user base for them to have a foothold to grow from. And, and that's for a couple of reasons. One, you know, we're forming habits and, uh, and, and consumers are starting to uh, have experiences with the voice assistants. And so the familiarity will be there for at least a certain segment of the population. The second thing is the training data that they'll get from that, which will, they'll have enough users on it that they'll start getting data so that the Bixby AI will continue to improve. And then ultimately, you know, they, the biggest asset that the company has is it's always the number one or two global smartphone manufacturers. So they can, they can put Bixby in front of a lot of people. And then it's just a matter of making sure that the utility is better than the Google Assistant, which is also on those same devices. And here's where it might come down to technology in, in those instances. Bixby 2.0 is the first that we will see of Viv, which was the acquisition last September, which we mentioned earlier in the show. Um, and that, that was founded by the, the people who were actually among the original team that founded Siri um, that was sold to Apple. And then uh, a few years ago, they left and started their own voice startup and created Viv, you know, is like an, an Alexa or, you know, in fact, the, the parallel is probably better is uh, SoundHound's Hound. Uh, for a couple of reasons. But here's some people who've been in voice for a long time. Uh, you know, Siri came out, you know, it was announced in 2010. I think it was first available in 2011. They know what they're doing. Uh, one of the things that they talk about are compound requests and multi-service requests. They don't use those terms, but that would be a way that most of the people in this industry would think about it. A compound request is to say something like, you know, open this, tell me this, and do that. Right. So there's three things that you're asking for or in, in two after you, you know, engage the, the voice assistant. If you look at what we do with Alexa and Google Assistant, um, they're not compound requests. They, they tend to be single shot requests. So this idea that you can ask for more than one thing at a time and sort of simplify the interaction is an important step forward. And, and, and one that Alexa and Google Assistant need to get better at. The other thing is this concept of multi-service requests, which is that your skill or voice app don't need to be able to do everything, that someone could invoke um, your, 
your voice app, we called it like a service. And then they could access other services that are, that have information or capabilities beyond yours. You know, so for example, you could open it, ask to look up your, um, your cell phone bill and also pay it using uh, Venmo or Square or something like that. Right. So, you know, what you're doing is you're doing a lookup and you're doing a pay all in one command. Um, those are the types of things where we're going to see over time and you see if you probably see it first and travel in some of these other areas where you've got these deep domain expertise uh, and no one voice app is going to be able to answer all the questions. But they if they have the capability, they could reach out to other services that have already captured that domain experience. And so then they could have this interlocking sense of voice apps. And in like the iOS and Android world, that's only been available from app to app connectivity for just a couple of years now. And, you know, it opened things up quite a bit, but it's still highly restrictive. This seems like a much more fluid way for us as consumers to have essentially a boundaryless. Uh, voice app ecosystem where we go to the places where we want things to be executed, but they don't have to do everything themselves. They can use other services. I think that's really important from a, from a, a technology standpoint. I think everybody hopes that that is the way the market continues to move. And that uh, is why that uh, Alexa and Cortana partnership was so significant uh, because if those, if Amazon and Microsoft can find a way to play nicely together, then there's no reason why any other two players can't, you know what I mean? Yeah. I think that, I think that makes a lot of sense. And then it's even within the voice, you know, assistant platform, allowing the third party skills and voice apps to be able to collaborate. Uh, you know, that's the model that SoundHound's Hound is using today, which I think is a really interesting way to think about it that, you know, once you're in that ecosystem and you might be using Hound as your point of access but you can go to one um, application within, you know, that's using Hound, um, and that application can then access information or capabilities from other applications in that area to to perform more complex or valuable services. So, I, you know, ultimately, that what we would have called that in the technology world is a service-oriented architecture. You think about web services, is this no matter what your point of entry is, you can get other things outside of that point of entry whenever you need it. And then just the utility goes up when you talk about a true assistant. You know, if you if you had a butler, right, the butler wouldn't be able to do just one thing, right? He's not just going to pour you tea. He could also go to the store, right? Or he could call a car or he could, you know, get something to come by to fix the, uh, the, the electricity or something like that. So, so I think that's what we, where we need to head with this. And right now the existing platforms that are popular don't allow that type of interaction. And, and, and Viv says it's going to, I don't, you know, we haven't seen it yet. So we have to see what the architecture is, but it's, it'll be a tremendous step forward if they do. And if that's the case then, and they can get developers to build to it, which is a whole nother story, um, then we could see a, a really robust set of capabilities on that platform that are not replicated on the other platforms. Yeah, no, I'm in complete agreement. I mean, just imagine if you went on, you know, like the Safari browser and you typed in www.amazon.com and it returned and it said, no, thanks. <laughs> we're, yeah, right. We're, Absolutely. <laughs> we're, no, you know, go use another browser or another computer if you want to access that website. I mean, it's just, it would be absurd. And, and I think we're going to get to that point very quickly if we're not already there with voice. 
And all, the other thing that I think is worth mentioning here too is that um, it's not to be understated the fact that you've got entirely new generations of humans uh, who are growing up with these computers, you know, with Alexa and with Siri and, and becoming accustomed to doing stuff with voice. And that's right. And, and with young people, um, they're not all that interested in, you know, a big corporate strategic uh, strategery, <laughs> you know, they just want stuff to work. And, um, and so having an open architecture and, and flexible, um, passageways in and out of different voice assistants and ecosystems, I think is uh, going to be fundamental um, very soon. So that's, uh, that's great. So moving on to story number four, Alibaba, Tmall, Genie to go into 100,000 Marriott hotel rooms across China, um, I think for the most part, uh, if not entirely. You know, I don't know that much about Alibaba. You know, again, Brian has said a bunch. Different guests on the show uh, know have known differing amounts about them. Uh, obviously, they're a huge company. When I look at this, I just it just screams to me like the Win um, Alexa partnership did. There's no place that voice is not going to go. Uh, every business is going to have to have a voice application, um, and if you need one, call Voice XP. Shameless plug. Um, but, uh, not only is every business going to need a voice, uh, skill or application, uh, if not many, but then there's a whole hardware strategy that every single business that exists an organization has to think through of what hardware should they be providing to facilitate voice, uh, and voice interactions. And so, right. um, you know, my question for you, Brett is, um, what should we be taking away from this story uh, that, that it, it, you know, perhaps you agree with what I just said or, or even beyond that. Yeah, I'll leave it there. What should we be taking away from this story? Fair enough. So I, I think your initial response is a good one or your initial in, inclination there that it shows that we're going to find microphones all around us in the environments we inhabit uh, because there's utility there and people are already seeing that. Really, the angle I take on it, though, is I'm particularly interested in the uh, voice assistant smart speaker battle in China. So, you know, essentially, just to break it down really quickly, you've got uh, Alibaba, which the best analogy is they're the Amazon of China. Um, big online, they dominate online commerce in the country. They've got other things. They've, they've got like an AWS uh, type of service as well. Um, they're in... Um, taxis, <laughs> like an Uber competitor. So like all those guys are. Uh, interestingly enough, the, you know, the, the two key competitors are um, Baidu, which is like the Google of China, um, who has Duo OS. And uh, they've been a little slower to roll out devices, but they do have a voice assistant called Duo. And then you've got uh, Tencent, which is more like a media company closer to I don't know, a combination of uh, Facebook and Netflix. Um, and they have a, a big online commerce group uh, subsidiary called JD.com. And, and, and their, their smart speaker is called Ling Long Ding Dong. So uh, uh, for those of you who haven't heard about it, it's, a, it's kind of a catchy phrase. Um, and, uh, and it has a different meaning or it has a specific meaning in, in Mandarin, which I, I, I don't recall. But 
I, I bring that up and then there's Huawei as well, which is the number there, maybe four, number four handset maker and globally. Um, so, uh, and they're also playing there. So I, I look at that as um, what we're seeing with those companies. It's very similar to what we're seeing in the U S where you have Google up against Amazon, up against Microsoft, up against Apple. So you've got some, some big global players. They've got a lot of cash. Um, but the important thing right now is that what you see in the, it's kind of like China and the rest of the world. So the, everything's bigger in China. Um, and so they're so focused on that domestic market, you know, a hundred thousand isn't, you know, it's a lot of hotel rooms, but there's a lot of people in China. There's a lot of travel there. So um, that's just scratching the surface there. And all of those players are offering Mandarin solutions and will eventually offer um, uh, solutions probably for Cantonese and some other variants. Um, the question is, are they going to get out of the Chinese language? And I, I'm not sure that they will. And so they're really so focused on just battling each other to set up that um, that competitive space in China. And I think this gives Alibaba an, an edge. Um, they already have an edge because they've got the retail distribution channel. Um, but I think this is just another way where they're going to introduce people. They're going to, maybe their first experience with a smart speaker might be in a hotel room and um, then they might buy it and form some habits early on. So I think this is, this could be big for them, but it's, you know, we talk about it being early days here in the United States. I mean, it's way earlier there. It was Mandy Chan who was on this program, who had mentioned that uh, or sort of connected the dots in a way I had not thought about in saying that the rise of voice in China specifically was what she was talking about is directly, at least directly related in a large degree to the complexity of the written language yeah, that's that's absolutely right. Yeah, and um, that is very interesting. And, uh, of course, that just makes common sense uh, that that would be true. But uh, it opens the door to taking a look at all the different individual geographies across the world and assessing, you know, how much or how little that they m might be interested, uh, at least at first, in getting into voice. But uh, I, I just thought that was very interesting uh, in how that's pushing that market forward. But I appreciate your analysis on that. Um, and we will keep an eye on how that market um, continues to evolve. The, the next two stories I'm actually going to combine. So the story number five this week is Alexa can now differentiate between user voices, uh, which is something that Google Home has been able to do for some time. And then story number six is Garmin introduces something called Garmin Speak, which is essentially a piece of hardware that is Alexa-enabled that goes in the car. And rather than talk about those two things individually, I want to sort of uh, open the door to a different discussion. You know as well as I do, Brett, there's been tons and tons and tons and tons of news as far as Amazon has been concerned this year. Um, I want to just simply ask you the question, in your opinion, what is the best thing that Amazon has done this year? And what is the lowest hanging fruit, um, the thing that you wish that they would do immediately? 
The best thing they've done this year is Echo Show. I don't think there's any question about that. Introducing a true multimodal visual voice experience opened people's eyes to what's going on in the world. Plus, they've I've written I've written about this where essentially they they introduced a rotating billboard into my into my kitchen. Uh, which has all sorts of tremendous applications, as you can imagine. Sure. Um, the thing that I think that I would most like to see them do, and I, I'm, I'm really taking probably more of a supply side view of this as opposed to a demand side, uh, because I do work in the space and I work with um, uh, some product companies. Uh, but it's kind of astonishing to me that they do not allow companies with skills to sell their products directly from the skill. They actually have to go out of the skill into Amazon. And, you know, it's still an Alexa, but it's, you know, they, you sort of lose, you leave that bubble of the skill. So I, I invest this time to get someone to try my skill. They're interested in my product. And then in order for me to convert that transaction, I have to ask them to leave, <laughs> you know, is essentially how it, how it is. I have to tell sure. them, you know, Alexa, order this thing. So I think that's a big problem because voice commerce is such a big deal. And I think this idea of user voices is, is key to that. That's one of the key things around it. I think there's some other things around convenience and parity with Google, but this idea that I should be able to, to order by voice because it's me, I think is important. And I think we should just be able to go to these destinations, which are specific to a brand and be able to order from directly inside that. And I, and I, I expect that to come soon. I'm, I'm kind of surprised it's not there now, but I think that that's, that's a really essential thing for the healthy development of that ecosystem. And, and, and part of that's because we talk in this industry a lot about monetization. I know you've talked about it a lot in this show and your other shows related to voice. Uh, that's a really quick way for some people to say, here's my ROI. I can build something. It can be high quality and I can sell from within it. It's also, even if you don't um, have your own products, it's also a way for other people to start to monetize their skills where they could sell other people's products or uh, solutions that are complementary to what they are from within that scale. And I, and I suspect that that's maybe the most fundamental mechanical change uh, that needs to be made in this market. Um, and, and Google's already there. They've got a preview of this uh, for developers who can start using this. Uh, Amazon needs to get there. Yeah, no, I am completely uh, in agreement with you on the Echo Show. Um, and I've mentioned it, uh, before on this show. Yeah, I know you're a fan. Yeah. Um, how can you not be? I've mentioned on one episode of the show and of course I don't remember which one it is, but, and I might've mentioned on voice first round table as well at some point, what Amazon is doing right now is legendary business performance. It's what's going to be written about by perhaps you or somebody else or me or somebody, uh, some observer for years to come. There will be books written about it. Um, it's historic. The event they had recently where they announced seven or eight different products, uh, one of which was like the Echo Buttons, which are phenomenal. Um, I really like they're doing that. It's like they're, they're so in command of this market and leading the marketplace that it's like, um, uh, an incredible musician. It's like, uh, Jimi Hendrix or Prince, like they know the guitar so well that you're about to see them do some stuff that other people could only like dream of, you know what I mean? Like it's, um, it's yeah. operatic. Um, I think, it, I think part of it though is they worked for two, well, they worked for more than two years, but 
you know, you think about the two-year head start, it's probably really like a four-year head start on most of their competitors. And so a lot of the sorting through a lot of the messy details um, already happened. And so now they're just sort of in this execution and they know that there's certain things they want to try. Even if they fail, it doesn't matter because it's all part of this grand strategy. Whereas I think what we're seeing with Google and, and, and maybe to a lesser extent, Microsoft, and we will be, and we, we, I guess we will be seeing with Apple, but it's hard to see anything because they're sort of opaque, uh, is we're seeing the messiness of them working through these processes that Amazon was doing before when no one was paying attention. Sure. So there's two types. I mean, most people are very unaware of all the different things that Amazon's doing, because how could you possibly be? I mean, there's, there's things for as much attention as you and I pay to the marketplace that, you know, catch us by surprise or that we don't know. Uh, but for the layperson, it's just like they only encounter things as they use them. The breakneck speed that Amazon has had in the marketplace is too much for them to keep up with. It's fun to watch what Amazon's doing. And Amazon, yes, their employees definitely uh, seem to have license to fail as they pursue uh, different things that they think are, are a good idea. But um, it, it's also very, very helpful that Amazon is such a trusted brand. And I'm talking, you know, in the U.S., obviously. And, and, right. Uh, but, uh, you know, Amazon... Um, has gotten away with things that other companies would not get away with because they are who they are and they're so good at customer service and their pricing, uh, their dynamic pricing models on the retail side uh, favor the customer. Um, it's very interesting, the interplay uh, between the parts of the business. So the other thing to, to put a button on this is, yeah, I think uh, the monetization needs to come um, as I've talked about before. And, and so um, just to flesh this out, I want to get you on the record. So are you in favor of Amazon having an app uh, app store style monetization scheme for the Alexa skill marketplace or no? Oh, I'm kind of indifferent in terms of whether it's exactly the app store model, but I'm certainly not opposed to that. I think being able to sell and, and it, you think of the app store model is, they have all these tools that they provide and then they take a cut of whatever, whatever you do. I would say that having tools for people to use or the capabilities for people to use. Yes. I'm part of that. The monetization model that was used in the app store, I think is not quite right for this. Um, and, and would most people, if they don't know this um, just so they do know it's, it's a 30% cut that, Apple or Google get every time people conduct transactions through those. I, I think th that's too high for this market. Cause I think what we're talking about is something that's going to be volume from a volumetric standpoint, many multiples of that. So I think there's still a lot of ways for people to make money without charging that. And Amazon's model historically has been to, uh, to undercut price, you know, as they enter new markets and, you know, introducing an app store, model with a very low uh, cost of, you know, transaction support on the platform or no cost, um, you know, would sound like something that would be right in character for them and, and, and really put Apple in particular in a bind in terms of how they address it. Sure. And yeah, yeah absolutely. And uh, it almost makes you wonder if, 
it, almost in the way that Amazon uh, responded to Google Home being able to detect different voices and quickly adjusting and integrating that feature. You wonder if they're waiting to see if somebody else, you know, if Google uh, rolls out a marketplace um, where you can monetize skills or, you know, Google Actions before they do it themselves. You know, it's, it's tough to say, but, uh, but yeah, no, I appreciate you, you sharing your perspective on that. And we'll leave that uh, there. The final story of the week is the only non-voicebot.ai story, and it's just 9to5Mac, which is an Apple rumor site primarily, discussing um, the latest post in Apple's machine learning journal. And I include this story because I do hate on Apple quite a bit. I don't like a lot of what they're doing. But um, this is not one of those things. I love the fact that they are being more transparent with what they're doing behind the scenes with Siri and, and, and you know their machine learning processes that sort of sit underneath that. And my question for you, Brett, is do you share that view? And what did you take away from... Uh, not just this post necessarily, but the fact that Apple has a machine learning journal in the first place. Well, I think I think the latter point is the more important one that they're starting to share because a, a lot of the best minds and most experienced people in this space come from that world where uh, it's an academic world where they publish. And they were not going to Apple because they couldn't get the recognition with their peers. They couldn't collaborate with their peers. They couldn't build necessarily off of mutual work that people in the industry were doing. And so I, th- I think that was really the, the key motivator for Apple so that it would, it would help them from a hiring standpoint um, and, and help with uh, the way that the smartest people in the AI space want to work. Um, so I think that's really the more important thing. And, and you know, the, the work with Siri is great. I, I think anybody who hasn't done the study on this in terms of wake words, um, uh, you know, should look at it. It's really, it's really fascinating how you do it and how Amazon does it in a two-step model, local and then cloud. Um, Siri does a nice job with it. There's some open source things like Snowboy, which you can set any wake word to, although you have sort of a reliability trade-off. One thing I actually might suggest is... Um, You've interviewed John Kelvey before um, with Bespoken. John yeah. and I talked about this very topic in, I want to say it was episode six when I interviewed him for the VoiceBot podcast. Um, and one of his perspective, because he's done this whole idea of recognition and trying to understand if, if that's an initiation of an interaction uh, for some things that he was working on in voice about four or five years ago. And, uh, you know, it's really complex. And the fact is, I think it's great that not only once you get it to work, is that helpful, but, you know, you can see the, the folks that's on the Siri team, on the Alexa team, on the Google Assistant team continue to invest in that because it's so important that that, that first point of touch is good. And I find that Siri is really good in the near, in, in the near field most of the time. Uh, but there, I would say there's still more work to be done there. Um, I would say that uh, the, impl- the update that Amazon did with Alexa earlier this year, where it does a second verification in the cloud, that that's the wake up, uh, really helped user experience. And, and, you know, I expect a lot more out of this. But this is different than NLU and understanding what people are saying and text-to-speech. This is just the wake up piece, which is its own separate challenge and relies not just on the software in the back end, but also the quality of the microphones and the acoustic modeling you're doing at the device level. Very cool. 
So thank you for sharing your insight on that. Thank you for sharing your insights on all of these stories. And thank you for sharing your time with us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it, Bradley. It's uh, you're doing a great service to the industry. I listen every week and uh, I guess this week I won't have to, cause I was here. <laughs> uh, we appreciate you, Brett. You're doing great work with voicebot.ai. Um, that is a essential resource. Um, I just assume that everyone listening to this by now has, if they haven't gone to the site yet, they've paused the podcast to go there. And also there's a uh, mailing list you can sign up for for a weekly newsletter. Um, I will say this, uh, any, uh, if there's anyone listening who um, has a tip for Brett or has something that they want to share with, uh, with him or the VoiceBot team, what's the best way to reach you? Uh, a couple different ways. Um, I'm, I'm active on Twitter. So at Brett Kinsella, that's probably the fastest way. Um, you can also just do Brett at VoiceBot.ai. Cool. Thank you very much, Brett. Appreciate it. For episode 15 of This Week in Voice, thank you for listening. And until next time.